From local to global, we bring you the best conversations with your favorite athletes and Olympians. This is the Olympics.com podcast. Hey, it's Tom here with you once again, and thanks for jumping on our Olympics.com podcast. You're in for a real treat. This episode is entertaining and intriguing. Imagine growing up in a world where women weren't really allowed to run, or at least heavily discouraged from running competitively. No marathons. Longest distance allowed in the Olympics? Just 800 meters back then. Well, Bobby Gibbs said, try and stop me. And if the word were trending back in the day, Gibb would have been a major disruptor. I've always followed an inner guide, she says. Now I realized if I could, if I could show that this false belief about women was wrong, I could throw into question all the other false beliefs that have been used for centuries, really, to keep women in, locked in this little box. The now 80-year-old Gibbs says she wasn't a competitive runner, but the experience you know, kind of connected her to the earth air and sky. The ludicrous thought that women are not physiologically able to run marathons was shattered on Patriots Day 1966 when Bobby Gibbs snuck into the field and made history. It's a remarkable story of a person who was a lawyer, scientist, artist, a resume for the ages, and the runner well before her time. Here's Olympic Channel's Chloe Merrill with Bobby Gibbs. You're listening to Olympics.com podcast. Thank you for joining us uh, on the podcast. It's it's a privilege um, to have you on. Tell me, Bobby, in the beginning, um, when you, in your childhood, when did you start running? When did that happen? <laughs> when did I start running? I think I was probably about 9, 10, 11 months old. And I stood up. <laughs> And I started to run. <laughs> and I've been running ever since. <laughs> really. What, what was that I, connection I, that you formed with running? Like, what, it was, you... I mean, I remember when I was three, two or three, my dad worked at MIT. He's a brilliant chemist. And um, he was there as a, uh, I think he was a junior professor or something at that point. And we lived in a town near there, a suburb. And he would take me to the park, Waverly Park in Watertown. And to me, it was like, wow, this is incredible. This world, it's all, you know, the summer, the grass is green, the birds are singing, the trees. And I just had this sense of joy. And I just run as fast as my little legs could carry me. You know, oh, wow, look at this. You know, kids do this. Kids or dogs, the same thing. You take the dog to the beach. Oh, he's running up and down. His ears are flapping. He's so happy. It's the same with little kids. I just never stopped. And, you know, so I was running as a little kid. And then, you know, as I grew and then I, I rode horses a lot and I would run with the horses and jump the, I would go over the jumps with the horses and so forth. And then I just never stopped running. And then all my little friends, my girlfriends, and we had played horses when I was little, you know, we'd whinny and canter around, you know, you know really love horses. Yeah. And they all kind of settled down in about seventh grade and, you know, they, they didn't run anymore. And there I was still running, <laughs> running in the woods with the dogs. And there I am, you know, seventh grade, eighth grade. There I am. I'm 20 years old. I'm still running in the woods with the dogs. And my mother's having a fit. She's going, 
when I was your age, I was engaged to be married. How do you expect to find a husband running in the woods with the dogs? How are you going to support yourself without a husband? I mean, back in the 50s, which is when I grew up, I was born in the middle of World War II. I actually remember World War II when I was I was two or three years old. I actually remember. Uh, I remember that. And uh, so I grew up in the 50s. And in those days, women had very constrained roles. You know, if you were lucky enough to go to college, which most women didn't, um, then you were expected to be engaged your senior year and married because how else are you going to support yourself? There were no jobs available uh, really for women that paid anything. You couldn't get a mortgage. You couldn't even get a credit card as a woman without your husband's permission and signature. You were very constrained. And then the role, the gender roles are very defined. And then men, on the other hand, um, although they were the dominant ones and legally, and in fact, the fact of the matter is they were very constrained too, because they're supposed to be strong and rational at all times, and they can't show any feelings or even have any feelings. They have not too much to do with their children, you know, and never, God forbid, a man in the delivery room. Oh, oh horrors. So <laughs> you see, they had, we had these gender stereotypes, and we we're so busy finding, trying to fit ourselves and each other into these stereotypes that that you couldn't be yourself. You couldn't be your whole person. Like we all have feelings. We all are rational, and we're all emotional. We all have physical beings, and we have our different talents. And each individual has some different talents or ta you know collection of talents, abilities, loves. Let people. Like to ride bicycles. Some people love to swim. Some people love physics. Some people hate physics. So, you know, some people like to sew. You know, it's like that's the whole point of a democracy: is the individual. It's the individual who's who counts. And yet, us individuals, we get together and we create things together. And so, it's it's individuals cooperating together that make the world run. And so, I've always really. One of the reasons I love the marathon so much is it's a real, it's a democratic sport. You, one one year you're a spectator and the next year you're running in this race with the elite runners. This is amazing. This doesn't happen in baseball. You can't go down there on the field and, or or softball or or football. You can't run out on the field and start playing with the the, the guys, you know. And so anyway. So anyway, I love, so I, I have this, I love this whole idea of freedom and democracy and the individual having all this freedom and yet, uh, and yet being able to work together in, in a friendly way to create stuff. Your act of running in the woods then, uh, given the context you were describing as a 20 year old woman was still kind of a defiant thing to do. Even before you sent that letter to the marathon, you were finding a freedom in exactly. running and being exactly. with your, your exactly. dog in the woods. Like, get me out of this. I mean, in the woods, I could be myself. You know, I could run. It was like, I don't know if you've ever heard of that book or read it, Women Who Run With the Wolves. And it was like, I was harking back to, like, ancient uh, Artemis or Diana running through the woods with her hunting dogs. And so, and I didn't know that at the at the time, but... I just wanted to be free of all these constraints. And there I felt like myself uh, running in the woods. There's an incredible sense of autonomy and freedom and 
gee, you know, you can get from point A to point B all by yourself just by moving your legs. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> it's as simple as that, isn't it? But it's remarkable as well because you you talked a little bit there about what why you love the marathon, but but what was it back then that interested you in running the Boston Marathon? What what well, was it? I, yeah, I never heard of a marathon. And I was just running in the woods happily with my dogs. And then a, a father, or one of my high school friends said, well, since you love running so much, uh, why don't you go out and see the Boston Marathon? I said, what's that? And he said, oh, you know, they run, a couple hundred guys run uh, from Hopkinton to Boston every year, uh, 20, 26.2 miles. And I said, they run 26.2 miles without stopping? I mean, this is amazing. I was a very fast sprinter, but the idea of running 26.2 miles just blew my mind. And I said, so my dad and I went out and watched it. Then that was in 1964. And I saw these people running, and I wasn't thinking men or women. Strangely enough, I wasn't thinking men or women. I just saw these people running. I said, Wow, this is incredible. They're so strong, so silent, tap, 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 so enduring. I said, it's something basic about being human that's being lost in this modern world. And here's this tribe of you know people running by saying, that's my tribe. I belong there. I, I want to be part of this. It was like this inner decision. I want to be part of this. And I wasn't thinking, I didn't even, I had never heard the Boston Athletic Association or the Amateur Athletic Union. I didn't even know these people had numbers. I mean, I just wanted to be part of this incredible phenomenon of these people running. I wasn't even thinking men or women at that point. Later, I I was thinking that, but not then. <laughs> and so so I just started training. I didn't have a coach, and I had no books. There were no books. There, there was no running movement. It, it, very few men ran, and these these few hundred men came from all over the world, and um, they were the elite runners of the day. And so, uh, but there was no running movement. And for God forbid that a grown woman should run. In, in in God forbid, in public, it, you know, so I was way outside the social norm here, but I, I just started training. I thought, well, I'll just each day I'll try to run a little further and I'd run, you know, I'd run my first mile and <laughs> I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is great. I ran a mile, I could barely, you know, and then, but then it gradually, I, I continued and then my boyfriend had a motorcycle and he'd I'd ride on his motorcycle he dropped me off and then I'd run back to the house you know we go one mile two miles three miles and get up to eight miles he'd drive in the no and then okay I'd get off and then I'd run home and then at that point I was a live-in nanny for three kids with a family uh, in Winchester and my parents had gone on sabbatical and so I'd get home and he'd be there at the house. He was friends with the, the people I was living with. And, I, and, uh, and I'd come in, <laughs> he'd say, what took you so long? And, I, you know, I'd bop him with a pillow or something, you know. <laughs> anyway, that, that was the way I started training. Wow. And you asked me how I trained. Then that summer, I'd always wanted to see this country. I'm, I'm fascinated with the whole idea of democracy. Now I do this. This is kind of an experiment. <laughs> this is a real experiment. And up until now, it's like thousands of years of war and conquest and subjugation and rule, you know, and all this. 
So here is an idea of how people can live together without subjugating each other, without being uh, repressed by some emperor who keeps everybody in line. Et so, I mean, like we didn't want to do that anymore. Being a colony, we were a colony. And so I was very interested in this country and in, in, in the demo the idea of democracy and how, how this thing started and how is it going to work. And so um, aside from that, I was in love with the earth. I love the earth. I love nature. And I studied science. Of course, my dad was a scientist and he and I love science and nature. And I, and I kind of grew up like running in the woods, walking in the woods, sailing, horseback riding, this sort of thing. And I just was in love with the earth. And, and so I took a transcontinental trip in my VW van, it wasn't mine, okay, I take that back, it was my father's VW van, and he made the huge mistake of leaving it for me to use while <laughs> he, and my, he and my mother were on sabbatical. In fact, they went to England, he was at King's College, and yeah, so they went to England, and I had this van, and of course, I go, whoa, I got a van, and there's 3,000 miles of adventure ahead of me. And I had a Malamute puppy, a cute little white Malamute puppy. So the Malamute puppy and I went off across the country. And at night, I would sleep out under the stars. And and I had binoculars, and I'd look up at the stars, and i just go, wow, this is amazing. Like, how far does this go on? This is amazing. Here we are on this little planet. And it's one thing to say, yes, we're on, you know, the third planet from the but it's another thing to actually feel it, to feel it. And you're lying there at night and your back is on this earth and you can feel the whole earth and you can see this universe above you. And to me, it was the most miraculous thing. And the more I learned about science, the more and more spiritual, I guess, my experience was because I became aware of atoms and how they fit together with molecules and and uh, photons of light and, you know, the whole relativity theory. I was, you know, like, wow, no matter how fast you're going towards a beam of light or how fast you're going away, it always looks as though it's coming at you with the same speed. What? This is amazing. I mean, so what is this? Some kind of science fiction novel? You know, it's like, uh, and so I, I was just enthralled with this whole thing. And the more I learned about science, it was like, and I won't say religious, but I was very spiritually oriented, like direct, direct connection with with this, like, like it has to be coming out of this huge, vast love. I could feel it all around me and inside of me because everything was made with such incredible care, you know, and it, 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 this kind of care doesn't come out of hate or fear or any of this these crazy emotions it comes out of love this huge love that you take the care to, to, to do this and you know i didn't know how i go why is it here why bother with all this you know why bother I mean, this, this is unfathomable why bother with all this and uh, and it's just it always struck me as totally miraculous and so my trip across the country to a great degree, was like a trip into the universe. I was going to the wilderness. I wanted to see what planet Earth looked like and felt like before there were billboards, before there are highways, before there were electric wires everywhere. You know, I wanted to see the the primal Earth, and so I went. So I so as I went further and further into the wilderness, I went into the wilderness. I thought that I wrote a book about it. Well, I have it here. This book, Wind in the Fire, it's 
two years, the two years I trained for the marathon. And a lot of that was going into the wilderness and like, there's got to be an answer to this. <laughs> you know, I was looking for the, like, why bother with all this? What is going on here? And so that was the way I trained for the marathon. It was that, that was that was my training for the marathon. Turning on these existential questions. Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm thinking. Running is a great place for thinking. You can think. You've got miles and miles and miles, and you're looking at all the patterns of the dirt on the road, and you know, feeling the scenery go by. But you're also thinking. You can think. You can think. And I would think for hours running, you know, across the plains and up around across the Rocky Mountains and into the Pacific Ocean. It was amazing. It was an amazing way to train for the marathon. Well, I think a lot of people will connect with that because a lot of people who do run, uh, whatever kind of running that they do, for a lot of them, it's an escape and it's a time to sit and think and reflect and, yeah. and um, be present in the world, like just running yeah. through it and taking it in. So I think that's, yeah, it's a remarkable way to train. For it's a, a kind of meditation in that way, you know, coming into the present moment and going, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> you know, like, and then when you're running, you're so aware of breathing. I mean, you're breathing the oxygen. I mean, if it wasn't for green plants, there would be no oxygen, you know? And so we need, but so, you know, we take this every breath that we live, we're all breathing this amazing oxygen, this, this air that's around us. This is amazing. And then, and then you start to think, why are we polluting the, <laughs> the thing that we depend most on for our lives, you know, and then you begin to think, you know what, we better start taking care of the earth because it's the earth that takes care of us. We're part of the earth and we better start taking care of the, this planet that's taking care of us out of which we emerged. And so it's, it's a very integrating kind of uh, thing to, to run and to breathe and to put one foot after the other and until you get to where you want to be. It's also it's quite, good for goal setting. No, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to no, say. No, no, it's just, it's also making me think how attuned you, you were to the kind of training that marathon, elite marathon runners do now. They go yeah. to the mountains and they and they run in nature, so like without right. any distractions. And Kichoji, Elliot, the, um, the Olympic champion, um, he believe so much in replanting trees in the environment for, for the reasons that you're talking there about the, how important breathing is to be able to yeah. do what he does and and keeping the world clean to so that yeah. people can run and, and experience it like he does in the future yeah. so that's you're you are really ahead of your time in in I so know. many ways <laughs> but so, in that too yeah that's true it's a lot you know it's not just running it's just living you can't live without Absolutely. clean air you know, and clean water and good food. And I mean, it's just, it's just I mean, yeah, it's like fundamental, pretty fundamental. <laughs> yeah. So you pick, you pick up a pen and you write a letter asking to be admitted into the race. And then I, you received a reply that told you that you couldn't. Tell me about that reaction when you read that letter. from. I was living in California by this time. I was going to the university. I was about to start the University of California. And uh, and so I wrote to the BAA. In fact, I had met a runner out there accidentally um, on one of my long training runs. And he had, you know, and I said, I'm training to run the Boston Marathon. And of course, there was no running movement there, but he was part of the local track team. And 
he said, well, you, you're going to, you have to apply. And I said, apply. Yeah, it's like, no, you apply for what? I mean, you know, you just, you know, isn't a bunch of guys that just run. And he said, no, 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 <laughs> you've got to apply for a number. And, and see, but he said, I've never heard of a woman running a marathon. And so I wrote this letter to Will Cloney, the head of the BAA, or I, I wrote, I didn't know Will Cloney. I, I wrote to the BAA and I got a letter from Will Cloney and it said, women are not physiologically able to run marathons. Uh, we can't take the medical liability. Uh, and furthermore, it's a men's division race for which women are not qualified. And so he said the longest uh, accredited race for women is a mile and a half. And read this thing, a mile and a half. At the time, I was reading, I was running 40 miles at a stretch. And this wasn't just running on flat. This was mountains and hills and everything. I was running 40 miles in my training. I was in really good shape. And I get this letter that says, women can't run more than a mile and a half. They said, whoa, all the more reason to run, they said. Because now I realized if I could if I could show that this false belief about women was wrong, I could throw into question all the other false beliefs that have been used for centuries, really, to keep women in, locked in this little box. And so now my running took on this sort of social significance. I was going to change the way people thought about women. I was going to change the social consciousness about women. I was like, now I had a mission. And uh, and so I got this letter and I crumple it up. I throw it to the floor and I go out and I just run out of the apartment where I was living. And I run. At first, I don't know where I'm running. And then I kind of veer north and I and I run north following the shore, north, 20 miles to a little town called Delmar, where I late, later lived in Delmar. Uh, but at this time, I, I was living in San Diego. So I run up to Delmar. And then uh, it, by the time I get there, it's kind of late afternoon, people having picnics and, you know, and cooking hot dogs. And so I sort of wandered around. And people are very friendly. In in California, probably everywhere, really, but in California particularly, they're offering me hot dogs and stuff. So I'm eating, they're feeding me basically, and I'm wandering around like a stray dog, you know, eating hot dogs and stuff. And uh, then I fell asleep on the sand, and I slept there all night. And uh, and the next day again, I you know I got up. Now now it was clear in my mind. I'm going. I'm going to run. This is what I need to do. And so that's what I, that's what I did. I took the bus back, and I arrived in Boston the day before the race. And of course, my parents didn't know I was coming to Boston, and they had no idea I was training for the Boston Marathon because I knew they would try to stop me if if they knew. Um, they already thought I was nuts for running in the woods with the dogs. So I get to Boston, and I call them, "Hi, mom," you know, "Hi, Bobby Lou." That's what my my nickname, Bobby Lou, Roberta Louise. Bobby Lou, hi, Bobby Lou, where are you? I'm in Boston. And uh, wh what are you doing in Boston? Oh, I've come to run the Boston Marathon. Dead silence. Then my, my mother hands the phone to my father. And, you know, hi, dear. <laughs> you know, now, you just stay there. We'll come and get you. It'll be, It's going to be okay. You know, it's like they thought I'd gone around the bend, that I was delusional. And so they came to pick me up and 
and I came home and my mother cooked a big roast beef and I knew nothing about carbo loading. I did everything wrong with this. And I had new boys running shoes because my friend in San Diego said, you can't, you can't run in those shoes. What have you got on your feet? And I said, nurse's shoes, oh. nurse's shoes. I said, well, there are no other sturdy running shoes. You know, there's nothing that women can run in. There's little pointed flimsy things that fall apart. No, I got nurse's shoes. You can't run in those. Those are too heavy. So you've got to get some boys running shoes. So that's what I did right before the race. I got new boys running shoes. And they, and I didn't know you're supposed to break them in. I knew nothing. And so anyway, there I am and eating all this roast beef and everything. And then the next morning, I say, well, how am I going to get to Hopkinton? We, we lived in Winchester. It was quite a distance from Hopkinton. There no buses and all. I didn't have a car. I said, um, and my dad had slammed out of the house. You know, let's hear no more about this marathon stuff. He'd slammed out of the house early. And my mother's there. And I said, Mom, <laughs> you got you, you got to drive me. I've trained for two years for this. Don't you see it's going to help to set women free? Now, my mother had spent almost her entire adult life trying to get me to conform to the same deadening norms that had kept her so miserable for my own good. She said, she, oh, it's, you know, she, won't, she thought, you know, you can't, you're not going to survive in this world if you keep acting like this. And so, so I said, Mom, you've got to drive me. It's got to help to set women free. And so I, I said, Mom, this is a democracy. This means human rights for everybody, civil rights for everybody. It means, and that includes women. You know, I mean, we, we just gotten the vote, like, you know, in the early uh, 1920s. And now here's the second wave of the women's movement hadn't even begun yet. You know, you you gotta you gotta drive me. This is really gonna change things. And so I could see she was moved after I I talked with her for a while, and and you know and she said, okay, get the keys. She says, get the keys. I go, get the keys. Oh, thank you, mom. And so you know, so she drove me, and for the first time in our adult lives, driving to the marathon, we actually talked honestly to each other. Because a lot of times in, in those days, women weren't honest with each other. They were always putting up a front, and they were always trying to take the other woman down and stab them a little in the back, and 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 not be oh everything's fine at home. Oh yes. And meanwhile, their husband is drunk, and two of their children are sick, and the other ones run away. You know, they're not honest with each other. I'm miserable. I'm miserable. I'm I'm drinking too much wine. I'm taking tranquilizers. They were all taking tranquilizers and wine, drinking wine. Not me. I was not going to. I hate drugs. I, I'm allergic to alcohol. I'm not taking anything. No, I'm not going to live like this. But these women were unhappy. And so I really got through to her. So for the first time, we actually uh, started talking with each other, honestly, which I think is the kernel and basis of the women's movement is not not, you know, taking men down or being angry and all this stuff. No, it's talking honestly with each other about how we feel and helping each other, helping each other. And so here, finally, here it is, the, the core of the women's movement, just between my mom and me. And, and I said, Mom, I've always loved the real you under all this cloud of tranquilizers and alcohol. And, and she said, well, I've always admired and maybe envied your spirit and your independence but i thought i had to break your spirit 
and um, get you to conform. And she said, for your own good, for your own good. It's because I loved you. I was trying to do this. And then she goes, thank God I failed. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. And we hugged for the first time in years. And it's like, wow, it was this this transformation that that happened between my mom and me. It was like symbolic of what needed to happen with the whole world. And so, so she drives me to Hopkinton, lets me off on the outskirts. To and I start to run. In a way, that's where my race began. I, I start to run near the car and I run all over Hopkinton looking like, how am I going to get into this race? Because I thought I might be arrested. I thought, my God, the police are going to arrest me. I'm doing something I'm not supposed to do. The officials are going to throw me out. The other runners might try to, you know, uh, report me to the police. I, I didn't know what was happening. The crowds could could be hostile when you do something this far outside the social norm. So I was running all around Hopkinton trying to, and there was popcorn vendors and balloons. And I mean, this is, to me, the marathon, it, I knew nothing about sporting events. It was a celebration of spring. It was a celebration of life. It was like, wow, spring finally comes to Boston. Oh, this is great. But to everybody else, it was a big sporting event. <laughs> you know, so, And I'm running around. And I'm seeing here the men sort of gathering and here, and where am, how am I going to get into this? So I found a little clump of bushes right near the start, as close to the start as I could get. And then I went off behind some buildings. I said, well, I better warm up because I had just come three nights on a bus, on a you know, transcontinental bus, uh, three nights. And, you know, I hadn't had any exercise. I, I thought I better, I better warm up a little. And I, so I went out behind some buildings and I was running for about 40 minutes until the beginning of the race. And then as as the noon hour drew close, I got back behind the bushes and then the starting gun went off and I waited for about half the pack uh, to leave because I didn't want to get in the way of the front runners. And then I leaped into the pack and started running. And I was wearing my brother's Bermuda shorts in a black, a black tank top bathing suit underneath, and then a blue hooded sweatshirt on top of that. And so at first they didn't realize I was woman, but very quickly, I mean, within a few minutes, these guys, I could hear a studious silence behind me, and they're studying my anatomy from the rear. It's like, is that a girl? <laughs> no, it's a, they are quick, I'm telling you. These guys, they are really fast to spot this. You know, I mean, then I had these baggy Bermudas on, and I mean, they, they were good, I have to say. And so I could hear them talking. So I wanted to keep it upbeat because one of my purposes was to end the stupid war between the sexes. I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, the stupid war between the sexes. Oh, we're going to empower this group. We're going to empower that group. And no, you don't have to disempower somebody in order to be powerful. You know, you have to. You have to be free to be who you really are. That's the whole purpose of that. No matter if you're a man or a woman or you know, whatever, you know, whatever group you belong to, it's not what group you belong to. It's who you are as a person that matters. And each person is so incredibly unique. And so the, the whole idea is that you get a chance to be all of who you are and, and to, you know, to, to kind of manifest your talents and your abilities. This is my whole idea, men and women. So, oh, Men can have feelings. Wow. You know, <laughs> women can be rational. Wow. Wow. Great. You know, so women can be strong. And so, um, so there, 
there I was trying to end the war between the sexes. So I smiled and turned around and laughed. And, I, and now comes the moment. They could easily shoulder me out or call police or whatever. So to my great relief, they said, wow, I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. Now it's like, they were my brothers. They were my friends. I said, and I said, I'm afraid if I take this sweatshirt off, and I was getting hot. It was a really hot, sunny day. They'll, um, no, they'll throw me out. And they say, we won't let them throw you out. It's a free road. So they were protective. I mean, they were, they, we were friends. We, you know, we were running this thing together and they loved it. They absolutely loved it. The men were fantastic. And uh, so, so we ran, you know, all the way to Boston. Well, we got halfway is to um, Wellesley College is a women's college. Mm -hmm. And, and you run through and the men are going, Oh, the best part of the race is up ahead. The tunnel of love. It's the tunnel of love. And I said, what are you talking about? The tunnel of love? No. And so what it is, is a lot, two lines of women standing facing each other with their arms up touching. And then so it makes a tunnel. And you, and you have to go through this tunnel. And uh, in the, in those days, the, the spectators were all over the road. I mean, you know, it wasn't organized like now. And so, so, and the men would kind of squench down and go through this tunnel and the women would be, all be jumping up and down and yelling and screaming. And, and so, so uh, I get there and later the president of Wellesley, um, Diana Chapman Walsh was then a student, later became the president of Wellesley and I met her in 1996 and she wrote a really nice article and she said we knew you were coming because the press had spotted me way back in Hopkinton and they saw uh, a woman running and they said oh we see history in the making here and so they were calling ahead and they found out who I was they related in asked the runners around me said no what's your name you know and I said where do you live no I said Winchester Mass uh you know, Bobby Gibbs. So, so they, they knew who I was and they were broadcasting on, on a local radio station. So the women, Diana Chapman Welch said, the women were all looking for me. They were looking for me because they knew I was coming. They knew where I was on the course because I was on a sub three hour race for most of the race. So here I'm coming along, keeping up with the men and the women were going crazy. They were jumping and screaming and jumping up and down and I've told this before, one woman, older woman, uh, with a bunch of kids around her, she's going, Ave Maria, Ave Maria. And, you know, and I go by and like this tear is running down her face. And it's like, yeah, I could feel tears in my own face, just, you no, know, just behind my eyes, you know, with this. And it's like, at that moment, we knew the world was never going to be the same. Like, there's no going back. We aren't, we aren't going to go back to the way we were. Like, this is something new. This is going to change the way uh, things are. And so it was uh, amazing, that moment. And then I ran on to Boston, but my feet uh, I had, you know, they were getting blisters. And around Heartbreak Hill, when I get to the Newton Hills and so forth, the hill didn't bother me at all. I mean, I was—I had been running up and down the Rocky Mountains of the Sierras and so forth. The hill was—it was interesting because it came towards the end of the race, and there were, I think, three little lumps up to the top. But the hill didn't bother me. My feet were killing me because the blisters broke through, and so I took off my shoes at one point, and I was running along in my bare feet, 
And then, of course, the bottoms of my feet started to hurt. And so I put my shoes back on. And now it was really painful. And my pace dropped way off. I was just literally tiptoeing along. Just I, I knew I had to finish because if I didn't finish, I was going to set women back another 50 or 100 years. You know, here's this woman who tried to run and look what happened to her. You know, I was, That's oh, an incredible no. pressure. I know. Don't anyone else try it? You know, the weaker sex just can't do these things, you know? So I knew I had to finish, uh, and there I was at every step was incredibly painful. And I, and, uh, I could see my time was just, you no, know, it was it was taking me longer to run a mile than it had to run the previous eight miles. So it, it, it was it was really painful. But I went up over the hills and down, and, you know, and I came down the final stretch. And I get to the final stretch, and the press is all there, and the crowds are cheering and everything. I get to the finish line. The governor of Massachusetts came down and shook my hand. It was amazing. And the press was all around. And and the, the next day, it was front page headlines. Hub Bride, run, first gal to run. In fact, I have it here. Hub Bride, first gal to run marathon. And for all of you who don't know, Boston, Boston Brahmins could consider Boston the hub of the universe. Uh, and so I think so. It's like a bride, you know. And I had just married, uh, a, a, actually, a friend of mine, <laughs> and uh, I was living in San Diego. So the hub bride thing. So that was headlines, and that went out all over the world by wire. My parents have friends in Malaysia, and they wrote to my parents and said. Uh, Oh, we just read about your daughter in the local paper. <laughs> so it's like, it's just, and the Japanese had won that year. They were the, they, they were the first three or four uh, to finish that, that year. So it was in the Japanese papers all over Europe and so forth. So that it really, it uh, what I wanted happened, actually. It went out. It changed the way people thought about women. It's like, it, to some people still couldn't believe it. It was so... I mean, women bake cookies. They do not run marathons. I mean, you have this stereotype of a little woman dancing around in her apron in the kitchen. There's no way this, this, these two images can combine in your head. You no, know? women running the marathon. It doesn't, doesn't figure. So there were still a lot of people who, <laughs> is this? I mean, this is unbelievable. This is, but, but on the whole, it was like, wow, this is incredible. It changed the way people thought about women which is what I wanted. And I figured after that, the marathon would open up. In fact, there was an article in the paper. I think it was Jack Kendall wrote an article. And already the AAU, there was a spokesperson for the AAU, and this is in 1966, he was talking about changing the rules so women could run. Because people were just blown away by this. And so, so that was 1966. And I do think that was a pivotal event in changing the way people thought about women and to to uh, in, in in like igniting the next wave of the women's movement and certainly igniting the running movement because they described me as a shapely blonde housewife. Oh. And so if if a shapely blonde housewife can run a marathon, so can you, you know, so can anyone. It's like if for the first time people start, you know what? Maybe I could run a marathon, no? And then men and women, you know, men and then women started to think, wow, maybe I could run a marathon. 
and uh, and that is an important step for women on the on their path to autonomy. Completely, right? If you can run from A to B, yeah, you can do just about anything. <laughs> so know? when um, women were allowed to run the race, which was in 1972, so you ran it two years after you first ran it, and then yeah. in 72 they let women in. Did you feel? slightly responsible for that was that a moment of pride for you when that happened oh yeah yeah I this is just what I wanted to happen and it would not have happened I mean I'm not an organizer you know I'm not really interested in doing that I'm interested in running I love to run that's my thing I love to run I love to be part of I love to think I mean I was at that point I was studying physics and biology and all that was what I was interested in I so the running was part of part of this love that I have for the universe it wasn't the whole thing and but it was Nina Kusick, and she never gets enough credit. Nina Kusick is the one who brought the petition before the Amateur Athletic Union in 1971, the petition to accredit women's marathons. She bought she brought it, and the AAU agreed with her. Yes, we will start to accredit women's marathons. So in 1972, that was the first ever women's division marathon at Boston or anywhere, really, anywhere, at least in the United States, wherever the dominion of the AAU was. By then, I was, what was I doing then? I had remarried and uh, I I just finished, oh yes, (laughs) I had just finished my pre-med undergrad and I was applying for for law school. I was applying for medical school. Well, it was very hard for women to get into medical school or research in the scientists in the sciences or anything in those days. And I'd gone for my interview, and they said, uh, "You're too pretty to go to medical school. You'll upset the boys in the lab." Wow! And I said, "What? <laughs> it's like what? It's like we're obviously just going to get married and have kids. We we have to save the places in medical school for the men who are actually going to practice medicine. You're obviously." <laughs> you know, not going to practice medicine. That's and insane so, because you've, you've literally just made this statement with yes, the medicine. Yes, yes. And then, and so, yeah, they didn't transpose from the running to the medical school. And even though my grades were top grades and everything was fun. And so I said, I think I'll go to law school. <laughs> so I, I started and I was interested in civil rights and environmental protection. So I said, you know, I'll go to law school. So that's what I did. So you're still defying the gender role that's been ascribed to women at this point with your law degree, with your interests in the world, your curiosity. Um, you're a painter and a sculptor as well, I can see behind yeah. you. Um, your you, you. You actually recognize this as a painting. This is one of my more abstract paintings. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I, and I just, I'm wondering, did, where does running... Did it stay with you throughout yes, the rest yes, of it? Yes, yes. Running is important part of my An hour a day keeps the doctor away. But I mean, of course, I love my doctor. I don't want to keep him away. That's a slight change on an apple a day. And now oh, running a day. An hour a day keeps the doctor away. It's true. And um, so, so, so I'm still running. running. I'm still sprinting down the beach. And, uh, and my artwork, I'd show you some of my bronze sculptures. I do the human... Uh, form in motion, mostly a lot of runners and athletes and so forth, it, which is different. Most most statues that you see are very static. 
but I like to get the human body in motion and you know, I kind of feel it from within and um, um can you tell me a little bit about the um the statuettes you yes. created uh yeah. for the Olympic trials when the marathon women's marathon was finally allowed at the Olympics in 1984 you created these I created a statue of Olympia. What could be more fitting? A woman, Olympia. And she's about this high. And she, and Joan Benoit won it in, in the trials in the United States. And, um, and so it was, yeah, it was part of the first women's Olympic trials here. And I was invited there. They commissioned me to do this piece. And then they invited me to the trials and and it was really great. We it was it was kind of like being in a college dorm or a camp or something. All these incredible, wonderful women all around, and we were talking, and and it was just a wonderful experience. And it it um, yeah, it it was really fantastic. And, right. and it's not the only statue that you've created as well. There's one of that's on the Boston Marathon route. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's at the Hopkinton Center for the Arts. And Hopkinton is a really interesting town. Of course, it's the start of the Boston Marathon. And a Boston Marathon is, I think, is the oldest continuous annual marathon in the world. It was started just one year after the first Olympic marathon. And uh, so, so uh, yeah, they commissioned uh, Tim Kilduff, who is the head of the 26.2 Foundation, came up to my studio and he saw my sculpture. He said, wow. We we got to get a sculpture of a woman on that course, and I said Joan Benoit, and so he said, "Yeah, Joan Benoit, great." So I called Joan, Joni, and I said, "Joni, we want to do a sculpture of you." And she said, "No way, absolutely not. It's got to be of you." And so I said to Tim, "Tim, she won't do it. She wants it to be of me." And Tim said, "Great idea," and I said. I don't want to do a sculpture of me. This this is incredibly embarrassing. How am I going to do a sculpture of myself? And he said, "You don't. If you don't do it for yourself, we're not going to do it." And I said, "You know, you have an interesting way of negotiating." <laughs> and so I said, "Okay, I'll do it of myself." And so I did a little one, twelve inch one, and then we had it scanned here, three D scanned. In Cambridge, we had a 3D scan, and we actually sent the scan via email to California to um, a, uh, a, a studio where they make um, sets, sets for movies. And so they sent back a foam. It was like styrofoam, like a styrofoam uh, enlargement. They can enlarge it, the, uh, a life-size styrofoam uh core of this thing which serves as the armature and then i put on a layer of clay over this and i do i redo all the features the fingernails the the eyebrows you know the, the huge amounts of details in this and uh and then we have a life-size clay sculpture and of course i put on the bermuda shorts and the tank top bathing suit and the whole thing and and uh, then we got this life-size clay, and then we take it to a bronze foundry where they have the molten bronze and the casting, and they make a mold of it, and then they pour it, and uh, and then they they use the lost wax technique, which is it comes from the Bronze Age, like thousands of years ago, the same technique. So this bronze statue is now sitting outside of the Hopkinton Center for the Arts on their front porch, and inside I'm 
I have an art exhibit. Another woman and I have an art exhibit and she does photography and I do sculptures and paintings, these kind of wild abstract paintings. Cycling back for a second to your um, the, the statue you did of you with the Bermuda shorts and the tank yeah. top. Those items are going to be in an exhibition at the Olympic Museum in Lausanne as part yeah. of the free to run exhibition that will be there starting the 11th of May this year and until next year. And yeah. that exhibition is um, celebrating long distance running and marathon and how marathon has become a social revolution for which you've been this massive part of um in in your decision to run in 1966 and and thereafter um what do you think about the exhibition idea do you think it's important to tell me a little bit about what you decided I, to get involved i've always loved this whole idea of first of all the olympics and the whole you know whole, going all the way back to ancient greece and then the fact that there, this Olympic Museum, which is a beautiful, the building is a work of art in itself. And the people there are all so amazing. And to keep this trend, it's so important to keep this tradition alive. And this, I mean, let's also say this is the roots of democracy. And, you know, and yes, it was a very limited democracy at first. And now it's becoming more and more inclusive. And my vision for the next the, the next conscious raising, I mean, okay, so women, uh, we're doing a lot better than we did before. Next is human consciousness, like human rights for everyone in the world, civil rights for everyone in the world. And so far, the best and only way we figured out how to do that is through some kind of de democracy where people can protect their own rights and have rights to stand up to uh, autocratic governments and so forth. So so far, this is the best way. And yes, it's it's flawed and we have to, you know, it's, we're evolving it and so forth. But it, it's so far, it's the only way we've found of preventing tyrants from getting controls of, of governments. And so the Olympics is kind of the core piece of this. And, you know, in in Geneva, we have the United Nations headquarters. And I see that United Nations headquarters in Europe, in Geneva, as being kind of a partner with this Olympic Museum. Like, to me, the two things really go together. It's like this Olympic Museum it preserves this incredibly crucial tradition that we have. It's, the Olympics are fantastic. It brings people together from all over the world, all political parties, all races, all ethnics, all genders. We're all together. With the Olympics, sports is an incredibly good way of making friends with people in other countries and other cultures around the world. And once you have once you have friends in these countries and there's this network of friendship, then it becomes much more difficult to have a war. You know, and to me, war is is like a social disease. It's like it's it's the horror of the world. I mean, people don't want wars. Ordinary people don't want wars. They want to live their lives. They want to have their children. They want to have, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a, a steady income, some kind of way of supporting themselves. They want to have a good education for their kids. They want to have safety in their persons and belongings. They don't want to be bombed and bombing each other and so forth. The idea of one human being killing another human being is outrageous. It's, it's unacceptable. And, you know, we got to get over this, guys. We've got this one planet. 
and we're all different. So let's get together and learn how to get along. And the best way to do that on a personal level is friendship. So now you've got these friendships with people all over the world, and they're coming to your country, you're going to their country. And I, I often see sports uh, uh, as a way of kind of weaving the world together. And so the o- Olympic, the whole idea of these, the Olympics is like the core of that thing. And I think it's incredibly crucial that we keep up that tradition. And, and it, it, your museum is right at the core of the core. So I, I love this, and I I can't wait to see it and to meet all you guys. And, and what do you ho- what do you hope something like an exhibition where we remind ourselves of those moments of of evolution over time of how the Olympics and and something as kind of simple as running can transform lives? What do you think that impact can have for the runners of the past, but also the runners of tomorrow, of of today and tomorrow? It's history. It's history. And uh, we draw a lot of inspiration from history and also a lot of lessons from history. And so here, so often when you read a history book, it's about this war and this conqueror and this one conquered that one and so forth. Now we have the Olympic history of the world. It's not about wars. It's about people getting together and, and having these incredible events together. It's like, how were the actual people living and and these athletes that came out of this and and were kind of carrying this tradition onward it's a way of competing without killing each other (laughs) well I, i wanted to ask really um what advice would you give a runner today or would you share as part of your story if if to our listeners what would you what would you say if you could say one thing to them just to runners well to everybody (laughs) runners are not runners (laughs) i mean your life is so rich and it's so full of experience yeah yeah well i i think one one thing is to kind of open your eyes and your mind and your heart so that you realize that you're living in this incredible miracle and running is one way of experiencing it physically and and also listen to your body you know sometimes your body wants to joyfully run and sometimes it doesn't really want to run but you've set this goal and you think you know in order to get to my goal i've got to put in this time and so you know it teaches you how to how to set a goal and how to work for it a little bit every day without killing yourself just just listen to your body. Don't the worst thing is injuring yourself. You do not want to injure yourself. So it's important to listen to your body I and mean, be grateful that you have this incredible body and be grateful that you have an earth to run on and other people to run with. And just this idea of, of wonder and gratitude for life, I think, is fundamental. Did your dad change his mind after you did the race? I didn't tell you the final scene of this thing <laughs> is uh when I, after I ran the marathon and I was interviewed and I shook the governor's hand and so forth, then I took a taxi home and I arrive home. There's cars all up and down the street. And I think to myself, uh, somebody must be having a party. And I get to my house. They're all at my heart, my parents' house. It's like, it, it, it's the press. It, the press is there. And I walk in and my, my mother and father is standing there in the living room, completely bewildered. I mean, surrounded by all these, no, it's, you know, 
did you know your daughter was going to run? And I, no, how do you feel? And so they're completely bewildered. And the phone is ringing. Congratulations on your daughter. We just, you know, all this stuff. And they're, they're just, they are so confused. And my mother's trying to, you know, get coffee for people. And so I said, yeah. And my dad puts his arm around me and said, you know, says something along the lines of, we knew she could do it, you know. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I and so I put my arm around him and I I say, It's those gib legs, Dad. <laughs> so it really helped it helped them to see their, their daughter wasn't totally insane. And they were very proud. The next year, 1970, 1967, I came back and they drove me, both of them drove me to the start. And they paid for my airfare back to, from California. <laughs> so the next year, the same thing. 1968, I came back and and ran again. And all and in 1996, the BAA awarded me a medal for as the woman's winner for those three years: 66, 67, 68. And my parents were very proud, and they never criticized me again for running in the woods with the dogs. Yes, that's. <laughs> Perfect. Sorry, I just needed to know, but that's that's what happened there. <laughs> Amazing. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate it. You too. Bye. This is the Olympics.com podcast. podcast. What a tale and an engaging storyteller too, huh? Surely the stuff of legends. Now, every year, the throngs lining the roads and streets of the Boston Marathon and every competitor can see... The Girl Who Ran, a statue marking Gibbs' historic run made more amazing because she also designed and created that statue. Thanks to Chloe and, of course, to the one and only Roberta Gibb, known worldwide as Bobby. We highly recommend you seeing the Free to Run exhibit at the Olympic Museum in Lausanne, Switzerland. It's inspiring for sure. Well, that's it for this episode of the Olympics.com podcast. Hit us up at Olympics with any feedback you have. We love feedback helps us to get better. You can also hit me up on my Twitter at TK Sports Tweets. We'll see you next time. Olympics.com podcast. Podcast.